Good afternoon. It's Friday the 7th of May 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, welcome back to Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Great to be back, Mike. Um, and we'll just get straight on. We've got a lot to get through. And uh, of course, the first uh, piece of news is the government, or the, rather the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, has decided that uh, if you're under 40, you really shouldn't be getting the AstraZeneca one, unless nothing else is available. And then you should get it uh, because it's dangerous, except it's not dangerous. The calculation of risk versus reward is okay, but then it's not okay, or I'll, it's very confusing. Nobody really seems to know what's going on. So they have reviewed the latest available evidence, apparently, including the current uh, COVID-19 infection rate, uh, the scale and pace of the vaccine program and modeling of the timing and size of any third pandemic wave. Third wave. Yes, it's coming. Exciting. Uh, this has been considered alongside the latest advice from the MHRA uh, on extremely rare cases of corona uh, of current thrombosis, uh, sorry, concurrent thrombosis, which are blood clots. Uh, the chances of a younger person becoming seriously ill with COVID-19 get smaller as infection rates increasingly come under control in the UK, apparently. So this is what they had to say. Uh, adverse events following the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine are extremely rare. And for the vast majority of people, the benefits of preventing serious illness and death far outweigh the risks. Except for those people who uh, happen to have an adverse reaction or, or worse, right? Right. Uh, so let's have a look at uh, what uh, Professor Wei Shen Lim said. He's from the JCBI. He said, safety remains our number one priority. Yes, uh, we have continued to assess the benefit-risk balance of COVID-19 vaccines in the, the light of UK infection rates, uh, and uh, uh, and the latest uh, sorry the latest information from the MHRA on the extremely rare event of blood clots and low platelet counts following vaccination. Everything's okay. There's nothing to see here. But if you're under 40, don't take it unless there's nothing else available, and then you should take it. And that's the advice. So safety is their first priority, right? Yes. Is that why they waived normal testing uh, procedures that normally take years uh, under an emergency authorization, effectively an unlicensed medical drug or molecule or gene therapy or whatever it is, unlicensed uh, for an emergency? What about the safety trials, years of testing, research, follow-ups? observations on people who have had it and so forth. Well, as we reported on Wednesday, Patrick, the MHRA has just appointed a chief safety officer uh, for the first time. Um, and uh, so clearly something has happened to make them uh, decide that they need to at least outwardly present the idea that safety is important. <laughs> so me and meanwhile, the, uh, the, the numbers aren't that staggering, are they, in terms of uh, COVID deaths and uh, cases and so forth. We'll talk more about those numbers in a minute. In a minute, yes. But first of all, um, if under 40s, under 30s are going to be getting another one. Uh, this is a, a new trial. Well, these are over 30. So I guess any, anybody, oh, over 30, anybody over, what's the difference between an under 40 and an over 30? I don't know, Mike. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of fun uh, during that decade. But uh, Dareford Hospital offering over 30s the Valneva COVID vaccine. This is a new and exciting brand, which has been introduced into the mix, Mike. Uh, they're having a study. They're having a study, and they're looking for recruits here. This is from Plymouth Live, Mike, and let's just take a closer look at what they're looking for. Anybody over the age of 30 who is in relatively good health, uh, okay, well, more about that, uh, and yet is yet to receive their COVID-19 vaccination, is invited to take part in the study, uh, and those selected will have their expenses covered up to, 
And here we go. This is the money offer the 600 quid. Excellent. So if you're over 30 and you think that you're in good health and you're not downing six pints a night down on the Barbican and you need 600 squids, I think you need to give them a call. You might get lucky, Mike. You might draw the lucky straw and end up in the placebo group, right? And then there's it's no risk whatsoever. You don't have to worry about all that AstraZeneca stuff and all the risks and all that. So you might end up 50-50 chance you might be in the placebo group. 600 quid. That's a lot of that's a lot of pints. Good. Yeah. Uh, now I noticed uh, Anton Levey, otherwise known as uh, the uh, UK's vaccine minister, uh, on the uh, on the front page of that uh, Plymouth Live report. Many have re have commented on the striking similarity between uh, the vaccines minister. I can't believe there's a minister of vaccines. I mean that on its own is a ridiculous. Uh, uh, thing for a title, uh, but uh, anyway, the in charge of the corporate jabs. Uh, let's look at this uh, video clip actually, and listen to what he has to say about where the program is going right now. Let's listen to this. We want to give the scientists as much optionality, as many options, to be able to deploy a booster. Now, coupled with that, Jonathan Van Tam is conducting a clinical piece of research called Cov Boost to look at which additional shot, is it Novavax, is it Valneva, is it AstraZeneca, uh, is it Pfizer, that would deliver the greatest protection. Uh, we have to make that available to them. And the NHS team uh, is already planning to be ready for deployment from September onwards, but the decision hasn't been made as to whether we go September or later in the year or early next year. Okay. That depends on the clinicians and how they feel the protection has lasted for the most vulnerable groups and of course vaccine uh, variant or virus variants that would be of concern that you want to protect against uh, like for, for instance the south african variant right so the variants are concerned trademark he's, he's made sure he's got the brand in there yeah he is the variant so optionality he said he came up is that even a word optionality i'm not aware of it if but anybody's in the chat box if you find out there's a bit of scrabble for uk column viewers Optionality, we're trying to work out if that's actually a word. Uh, but he's talking about booster shots, Mike. So it's endless vaccines for endless variants. So you can see how they're setting up September in the run into the winter season to kind of run this whole program all over again. In fact, if it, if it goes really well, they could just run it year round every year. Variants, variants, uh, boosters, boosters. Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I can't remember which government minister was on the Radio 4 Today program there to go saying we were coming out of the pandemic stage of this, adding into the endemic stage of it, which of course means we're going to be living it with it forever. And we're going to be heading to a model of, of potential waves and, uh, uh, and uh, booster shots and vaccinations two or three times a year, perhaps. So when, you know, when they called the pandemic uh, in early 2020, Mike, there's only like a few thousand people that actually, but somehow everybody knew, all the public health experts, Bill Gates, everybody knew that COVID would ravage around the earth. They just had this feeling it was like no other virus ever seen before mm. in, on the planet. And now they know that there's just going to be waves and waves and waves that COVID will just keep on going. He'll, he'll be touring around the world like Mick Jagger, never stopping, just constantly touring and uh, the rock star of respiratory viruses. This is just bizarre how they could see in a crystal ball like this. And really, what are they doing, Mike? There's a giant experiment. He's saying, well, we don't know what vaccines are gonna work. We'll try Novavax. We'll, we'll just kind of test it all out. 
in the public domain and we'll we'll decide what we should do what boosters you should get we don't know yet but we'll decide yes so it's just unbelievable how this is passing for the science uh it's really just extraordinary now one area where um the uh, the authorities are clearly concerned about the public response is with respect to adverse reactions um so this was being well twitter was giving this information out this morning uh vers and yellow card databases uh, show unverified reports of COVID-19 vaccine-related side effects and deaths that can be submitted by anyone, according to the CDC, and fact-checkers. So here come the fact-checkers riding to the rescue uh, to try to push back on the concerns over uh, the yellow card data. Uh, the Vaccine Adverse uh, Event Reporting System, VAERS, in the US and the Yellow Card Scheme in the UK are two systems that people can use to report adverse side effects of COVID-19 vaccines. The systems are open to anyone and are intended to provide a very early warning of previously unknown effects of the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, of course, uh, that is not quite correct. Every medication has some kind of reporting system. Um, and uh, But in this case, it's, it is particularly important because uh, there hasn't been the normal testing regime uh, in order to give proper uh, authorization to these these uh, vaccines, as we've seen from previous vaccines, this should all be, be being done in a clinical setting over a course of you know three, five, six, seven years. Right. But they're basically doing it out in public, and the fact checkers are jumping on anybody who's reporting anything negative. So it's Politifact and Full Fact, of course, our old friends Full Fact getting involved in this. Uh, they say that uh, uh, it's really important that you realize that the, this is really and something that anybody can report, but. Is it? Well, actually, if you follow the form through, it asks some pretty uh, key information, what, where you had your vaccination, what your dose, what your uh, batch number was, this kind of thing. It's not as if somebody, you know, a general member of the public who hasn't uh, uh, actually had a vaccine or hasn't been involved with the vaccination program has the information to hand to fill that, fill that in. Now, we've also got to remember that uh, the MHRA spent uh, what was it, a million and a half, something a bit more on a on a what was being described as an artificial intelligence uh, recording system, so that they could uh, make sure that there were no errors. They were expecting so many uh, adverse reaction reports for these particular vaccines that they had to uh, bypass the normal uh, procurement process in order to get this latest software package in order to record this stuff. Um, so this, they must have, you would assume. Uh, procedures in place for dealing with what is obviously a false report. But in any case, uh, I think it's a bit disingenuous of the, uh, in fact, more than disingenuous of the so-called fact-checking organizations to suggest that uh, you can just ignore the adverse reaction database information because uh, it's not necessarily come from a medical professional. Um, and uh, But there is, at least on the various, there, you know, attending physicians, there is fields uh, to, for that information. And, and a lot of the information you'll see, there's uh, comments by uh, doctors, uh, GPs, for instance, yes. attending physicians. Uh, well, of course, we don't get to see that information uh, on the yellow card uh, data. Uh, and in fact, we don't really even get to see uh, the type of infrastructure that VERS and the also the European version of the reporting mechanisms schemes have, where you've got a, you know, a, a proper way of, of sorting information and trying to compare information. We might have a, an announcement to make on that in the not too distant future. 
uh, to make it a little bit easier, but we'll keep an eye out for Monday's program for that one. More on the VARES in a minute, because we do have a, 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 an interview that was posted recently. We'll talk about that shortly. Okay, uh, but uh, Patrick, the most vaccinated country in the world, which particular country is that? Well, this is the Seychelles, a beautiful uh, in, down the South Indian Ocean there, the Seychelles. Why, and here's the headline from the Washington Post, why the world's most vaccinated country has seen an unprecedented spike in coronavirus cases. Imagine that. So they didn't see that coming, did they? But we, we sure did. The Seychelles stands as the most vaccinated nation on earth with more than 60% of its population fully vaccinated, more than other vaccine giants. Look at that term. The language is interesting. Giants such as Israel, Britain, two vaccine giants. Yes. Uh, and also almost twice the United States rate of vaccinations there. And they go on here. This is interesting, but the success has been undermined this week as the Seychelles found itself with the largest number of new coronavirus cases per capita and has been forced to reinstate a number of restrictions. So looking forward to the great tourist season, which their economy absolutely depends on, but oh no, uh, the cases have spiked. So you know, we don't know how they're generating this case data. Uh, for instance, if it's through PCR testing, uh, then a lot of it is, in fact, junk data uh, and probably mostly false positives. That's not us saying that, by the way. This is in a lo load of peer-reviewed journals as well. We'll show you some of that evidence in a minute, Mike. But isn't that interesting? It is an interesting correlation, isn't it? The most amount of vaccinations and they're having the world record at the moment for increase in coronavirus cases. Uh, just coincidence, Patrick, must be same in India as we showed uh, a week or two ago when if you look at the, uh, the, the trend uh, of the latest spike in India uh, of cases and the trend uh, of the vaccination, the trend seems, those two trends seem to match up pretty well uh, and they seem to be correlated in terms of time as well. So uh, what is, is there a connection? We don't know. Vaccine it, shedding, a lot of people are talking about that. Or is this a case of that the cases are driving the data it, so that they're doing a, a full court press on testing at the same time as vaccinations? Either way, Mike, uh, it, it's, not, it's not a good look uh, for the sort of the official uh, policy. Yes. And it looks like a vicious cycle that pretty much you know, anybody can get caught in once you start uh, opting into the mass vaccination program and the mass testing program that you will never, ever, in fact, uh, be out of the uh, COVID uh, lockdown death spiral. Yes, indeed. Where does that take us then? Well, let's just talk about numbers here. Uh, you know, just a, a couple of months ago, you remember these headlines here, yes. 100,000 UK deaths and Boris looking solemn there. That was across all of the news headlines, the newsstands. It was like it was like the Vietnam War, you know, or it was like World War One or World War Two. These milestones of deaths, and this is really the sacred death count that so much is built on. But uh, a few stories came out recently, and we we sort of looking at this hundred now, one hundred twenty-eight thousand dead uh, from COVID claims a lot of media outlets and the government in the UK. Well, we kind of well we didn't do the fact check. Actually, the Telegraph did did a type of a fact check. This is nothing new if you've been following this program, the UK Column News, but uh, that 128,000 dead from COVID, fact check, false. Yes. False. Pretty safe to say it's false. Let's take a look at that here. Uh, this is the Daily Telegraph. Uh, almost a third of recent COVID deaths in England and Wales not directly caused by the virus. This is according to 
Office of National Statistics, 33%, Mike, nearly, of people included in the overall death figures that COVID was not an underlying cause. And this brings a lot of questions to the hallowed death count. This is a type of a new religion uh, which has taken over really in the last 12 months. It has indeed. And what's really interesting about this is this uh, article saying 33%. This is the latest data from the ONS. But if we go back a month, it was 25%, in fact, 23%. So it's gone up 10% in a month. Um, so um, I'm not quite clear just exactly where that, uh, where that leaves us, Patrick. But let's just look, uh, remind ourselves what the excess mortality figures have been for the last 14 months or so. Uh, and have a look at uh, at the graph. Uh, this is from the Office for National Statistics, of course, the data. And uh, the red line is the uh, the actual all-cause mortality, not just COVID deaths, but all-cause mortality. Mm -hmm. The orange line is the five-year average. Um, now, that's when lockdown began in week 13 of 2020. And so we, of course, have been showing, I believe, over the last year, uh, that what happened in that first wave, if you want to call it that, uh, was that the vast majority of deaths were lockdown deaths. We're going to justify that in a little bit in a second. Now, as for the second wave on the right-hand side there, um, the gap between the five-year average and the uh, all-cause mortality is partly lockdown deaths. It's also very much the effect of um, the shutdown of the NHS for, for non-COVID patients. Mm -hmm. The um, throttling of services and things like that. Absolutely. Uh, now, uh, this, of course, is an interesting little comment here. Uh, All-cause mortality surveillance, this is for week 18 uh, up to week 17 data, where Public Health England is saying that there's no st statistically significant excess all-cause mortality. Well, yeah, that's really right from the horse's mouth, Mike. So, so where's the pandemic? Is there a pandemic on, uh, but we're still kind of going through the motions, aren't we, with uh, ma mask mandates, uh, with, you know, travel restrictions, vaccine passports, green passes, blue passes, for you know, all, the whole sort of nine yards. So it, it seems to me that we're in a position at the moment where the government is really struggling to justify this, this narrative that they're pushing out. Uh, but let's just remind ourselves about where the excess mortality has been taking place. Uh, now, you, you can see quite clearly that obviously there's been uh, quite a bit of excess mortality in hospitals uh, at the beginning of 2020 and also at the beginning of 2021. Uh, but this is what you would normally see in a flu, in a winter, a bad winter flu season. Um, but equally, we have this uh, mortality well below the five-year average from say June until September or so, again, as you would see in any year. Mm. Uh, and again, as we're coming out of the winter flu season in 2021, you can see for hospitals, we've got significantly less than below the five-year average in terms of mortality. And that's where that Public Health England statement is coming from, those figures. And the same for care homes. The, the uh, peak in uh, 20, towards the end of 2020 and beginning of 2021, in excess mortality was less than at, at the beginning of the year last year. But the one area where there has been no reduction in excess mortality at all for the entire year, not even in the summer, has been people dying in their own homes. Um, and uh, well, there need to be questions asked about this. There needs to be an inquiry into why this has been the case. My argument is that this has been the case because uh, people have not been receiving the health care that they need. The general practice surgeries have been closed. They've been sent to 111 numbers to 
dialed to try to get, uh, and they end up speaking to somebody in a call center. They're not getting proper hospital treatment. Uh, the well, we'll we'll see how that goes in a second. O Occam's razor suggests, Mike, that that's the most logical. That's probably the most logical conclusion. Is why you, why do you have a spike of deaths in homes? And it really has to be. That's the most obvious explanation. Yes. So um, I just want to remind everybody of this article here from Ian Davis, uh, A Deceptive Construction, Why We Must Question the COVID-19 Mortality Statistics. And let's just remind ourselves what he says here. Mortality risk disproportionately impacts men. In 2018, the average age of death for men was approximately 80 and 83 for women in England and Wales. The average age of COVID-19 death is just over 82. When we look at the standard mortality distribution, there's no Observ uh, observable impact from COVID-19. So let's just look at the uh, ON, latest ONS statistics. This is a new graph from the ONS showing COVID deaths by age, uh, a much better way of presenting that information than they've done in the past. Uh, and Patrick, correct me if I'm wrong, but for just about every disease on the planet, you would expect that people over the age of 85 would be most affected by it. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same, uh, equally, people under the age of one would be least affected by it in general. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what we see here for if for the, the deaths which are attributed to COVID is that COVID is behaving pretty much identically to every other uh, illness on the planet. Nothing, nothing remarkable. There's nothing remarkable. It's not attacking uh, generally across all age ranges. And so again, we've got to ask where is the pandemic? So let's come back to Ian's article. Uh, SAGE assessed the UK mean operational false positive rest uh, rate for PCR to be 2.3% of all conducted tests. Uh, the the uh, government conducted 18 million tests, of which 4.3 million were positive. Remember, that's 2.3% of all conducted tests, so that's 2.3% of 4.3 million cases. So let's just do the, uh, sorry, of, of 118 million cases rather, that's 2.7 uh, million cases, and therefore the total number of positive tests is 4.3 million. Uh, and so the uh, number of false positives, 62% of the total number of positive quite, cases. Quite possibly, or in some cases, in some clusters, even higher. Even higher. Because if there's a low prevalence of the virus or the disease in a certain population uh, segment, then you're going to get even f higher false positives. That's absolutely uh, correct. And if you're running high cycle counts on the PCR test, then that's also going to compound the risk of a false positive. It, when you have all of those boxes ticked, you're into the 97% likelihood of a false positive in some of those types of situations. Yes. So is any of that analysis being done, troubleshooting by the government to see the veracity or the accuracy of any of the data that they're piling up on tests? and cases and infections? Yes. Okay. Uh, so the, the standard uh, measure for looking at death historically uh, has been age standardized mortality, which takes into account age distribution, but also population size. Uh, and again, we can see that in 2020, it wasn't even significant compared to the previous years. Uh, 2021, uh, of course, hasn't finished yet. We're only uh, approaching halfway through, but nonetheless, I think we're gonna see uh, that the age standardized mortality falls from the 2020 levels. But none, keep in mind that the 2020 levels were still only the eighth or ninth worst since the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. So again, where's the pandemic? Uh, let's just remind ourselves of what the Royal College of Surgeons in England was saying uh, not long ago, more than 160,000 people waiting more than a year for hospital treatment. Uh, this is uh, 
Another indication that, in fact, much of the mortality has been caused by the lockdown and the, that policy rather than uh, COVID-19 itself. Uh, they said the total waste, waiting list for NHS treatment now stands at 4.45 million people. Mm. Right? How does, how does the government justify this complete reorientation of the NHS and leave 4.4 people, 4.45 million people high, high and dry uh, here is uh, Professor Neil Mortensen from the Royal College of Surgeons saying that these waiting time figures drive home the devastating impact COVID has had on wider NHS services. Let's remind ourselves it's not COVID that's had the, what, the devastating impact, it's government policy that's had that impact. That's right. Uh, so waiting lists for planned treatment were already heaving when the virus first struck. So what we've seen uh, as a result of the policy uh, that was implemented is that some, uh, an already bad situation has been compounded uh, by bad policy making. Uh, the Spectator has also been commenting on this a few weeks ago, COVID and the lockdown effect, uh, the look at the evidence, and uh, also th there's plenty of scientific literature on this, but this here's one, uh, inferring UK COVID-19 fatal infection trajectories from da sorry, daily mortality data, where infections already in decline before the UK lockdowns. Uh, and uh, that is a very important uh, paper to have a look at. And did we not make that exact same commentary back in, in early April? Absolutely, if we you did. Go back yes. and look at the programs. You'll see we talked about this back then. Yes. So, but but let me just add the last thing, Mike, is that the inflated COVID death numbers are really important. That's why we're also going through all of these numbers again because those death numbers are used by the government and by the media as a moral trigger to impose rolling lockdowns, as well as other repressive and needless policies, mask mandates, business closures, school closures, emergency vaccine rollout, social distancing rules, and the list goes on and on, are all predicated on the death count, that sort of dramatic death count that scares everybody. So they're running the numbers up as high as possible. You know, no distinction between dying from COVID or dying with coronavirus or linked to coronavirus or associated with coronavirus. Mm. I mean, that just does, it's not good enough. It's not, if it's not the cause of death, it should not be included in statistics. If we followed those rules, what do you think the real numbers would be? Uh, we have estimated that the real numbers would be somewhere between 15 and 18,000. Yeah, and that's not enough to justify shutting down. No, because 15 to 18,000 is less than the last serious flu. Uh, pandemic that we had and we didn't shut anything down for that and you didn't have to test and trace every man woman and child right. on the planet to uh to handle that crisis right so the media have a lot to answer for yes because they have not been doing their job interrogating these numbers they've just been taking them as gospel rinse and repeat rinse and repeat and here we are and if you want to know why that is watch uh wednesday's program and have a look at the scale of the government advertising budget uh, and ask yourself where that money is going. Well, speaking of government advertising, uh, the, the word really is propaganda here. Look at this. This is an interesting one. You'll see this. This is on the telegra Telegraph. This is paid for content, basically. And uh, I don't know if, if we can advance this or not to make sure. Or, yeah. yeah, there we go. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so this is government content. We'll take a look at this. We'll see if we can uh scroll down at all on this 
Uh, it should roll down itself. Yeah, so this is a typical feature, Mike. This is paid for. But if you see this online, a lot of people will think this is actually a news article. And this one here, I would encourage others to get involved so we can stop the spread of COVID-19. This is about rapid testing here. And this is apparently an NHS worker here. And she's basically Claire uh, Devi, 47. And you can see the stuff that they're, they're showing here, which tests or you know, rapid tests is going to pick up the infection uh, and so forth. Let's look at what they're, what they're putting out in terms of graphics here. Uh, let me just take a look at this. Yeah, you need to. Uh, oh, we oh, we'll use this instead. Okay. Um, yeah, so you can see they're saying with the PCR test now, they've changed the rules. People with COVID-19 symptoms uh, should, I guess, get PCR, but if people with no COVID symptoms should now get the lateral flow rapid test, you see. So they've rearranged the goalposts now with the entrance of the new uh -huh. rapid uh, test as well. So you can see that there's constantly, you know, changing uh, the rules on this. And you can see here that now they're saying that, uh, you know, with the rapid test, it's going to pick up the viral load. All of this is very debatable. This is, these are these cheap tests, which are being imported by China, which cost between 10 and 20 cents a piece, it seems like, anyway, uh, to manufacture. I don't know what they cost on bulk, but how they could determine viral load is really a stretch. But yet, these are the claims that are being made uh, in all of this literature, uh, which is being blasted online by the government here. And let's just take a look at what, what this says. So, and this is the uh, health and well-being coordinator from Saddleworth featured in this. This is really a propaganda piece, but you can tell by the language. So she's saying here, I did a test. Uh, I did a test the day after Boxing Day, and I thought I'd be fine. I wanted to go for a walk. So I did a test before I went out for a walk, she says, uh, and got my coat and my boots and then checked the test and thought, what's that? It was positive. So again, yeah, you go out for a walk, take a test before you go out for a walk, totally normal. Um, I booked in for my PCR test, uh, which basically confirmed uh, the result. So she, so she went for a PCR test after the lateral flow test. And we already told you, the high false positive rates on PCR tests. So that's not exactly a good way to confirm whether you have an active infection because a PCR cannot be used as a diagnostic test. No, but that is, that is the advice that if you receive a positive uh, test with a lateral flow test, you're supposed to go and get a PCR test to confirm the result. So you're locked in basically. Yes. But let's just remind ourselves here. I mean, this is even from the Lancet. There's so many of these uh, papers, Mike, here. Uh, talking about the PCR test. Here, look at this, one SARS-CoV-2. Replication has been controlled by the immune system. Oh my goodness, Mike, the Lancet admits that we have natural immune systems working in our body. This is revolutionary. Uh, RNA levels detectable by PCR on respiratory secretions fall very low levels uh, when individuals are much less likely to infect others. This is common sense, right? Uh, so the remaining RNA copies can take weeks or occasionally months to clear, during which time the PCR remains positive. This is just common sense here. And look at this. This is from the CDC, Mike. COVID, this is about COVID-19 vaccine breakthrough case investigations. Look what they just admitted here. Uh, will only, they will only examine post-vaccine infections with PCR thresholds of 28 or less. Uh, for any government people watching, let me just blow this up for you if you're having trouble reading or finding this document, that means RT-PCR tests with 
values of less than 28, okay? That means that they're not picking up, less likely they're going to pick up dead nucleotides. Again, if you're with the government, I'm sorry for the technical language. I know it's confusing. But basically, they've been running 40, 45 cycle counts for the whole year. And yes. guess what? You can find COVID on the bottom of your sneaker if you run a 45. You can find it on your pet cat, on your dog, on your dog's biscuits, okay? That's how sensitive the PCR test is. It'll pick, it, it's not going to find COVID, okay? It's going to find a RNA fragment which exists in many things, not just coronavirus. This is how we've generated all of these, quote, cases mm. over the last year. So again, the CDC is backing off, Mike. Now they run a re-sort of rejig the rules on this. So now, I'll tell you why they're doing that. They're doing that because they are concerned that people who've been vaccinated will be getting positive results. Uh, and of course, that's because the cycle count is so high. So they now want to reduce the cycle count to try to minimize the false positives. Absolutely. I think you've, uh, I think you figured that one out, Mike. So again, back to our NHS worker here. With the restrictions that had come in uh, in the week before, I fortunately hadn't uh, seen anyone over Christmas. And I was so glad. I would have felt mortified if I had given it to somebody. So, I mean, this is the stuff that they, they're printing in here. So now she's saying, I'd encourage others to do these tests. It's important so that we can slow down the spread of COVID-19. Is it really spreading? What are we talking about here? This was just published a couple of days ago, Mike. So we need to spread, slow the spread of COVID-19. Now, where is it spreading? What, how do we know it's spreading? What, from, well, it's not spreading. From PCR tests or in the media, it's spreading. It's really hard to tell. They're pumping this propaganda so out. So at the same time, the government is admitting that COVID-19 has effectively fallen to nothing because it's the summer. Uh, and it's, a, it's on the COVID dashboard. It's on all the various documents that they're publishing. And the media is still trying to push out this narrative. It is incredible. And in every town, every hamlet, every city, you'll see pop-up tents from the, the, the NHS giving out COVID lateral flow tests. Mm. They're literally trying to give them out to passers-by. Mm. Um, we, we've watched some of these stations and nobody's taking any of them. In fact, we've seen workers there just sitting there for hours on end and nobody's coming to take these tests. So they're like desperate to get people tested. Why? I guess they need some data. They, maybe they need some positive tests. Certainly they're not interested in negative tests or the fact that everybody walking by is in absolutely perfect health. It's tricky for them. It's tricky for them. But uh, look, let's move on to the flu. Uh, and Santa, now, when did we first report this? Uh, I think we first reported this before Christmas. Uh, but Scientific Americans finally caught up. Flu has disappeared worldwide during the COVID pandemic. They report this a couple of days ago. It's a miracle. Absolute miracle. Um, and uh, let's see, what are they saying? They're saying since the novel coronavirus began its global spread, influenza cases reported to the World Health Organization have dropped to minuscule levels. The reason epidemiologists think is that public health measures taken to keep the coronavirus from spreading also stopped the flu. So it's a lockdown has, has, has succeeded. in Our doing best this. guess, right? That's, that's the science talking. That's the science talking, yes. Influenza viruses are transmitted in much the same way as SARS-CoV-2, but they're less effective at jumping from host to host. Uh, because each year's flu vaccine is based on strains that have been circulating during the past year, it's unclear how next year's vaccine will fare should the uh, typical patterns of the disease return. The public health experts are grateful for the reprieve. Some are also worried about a lost immune response, however, if influenza subsides for several years. Uh, today's toddlers could miss the chance of an early age response imprinted on their immune system. So 
we're building up a narrative to keep the flu vaccine going because, of course, if flu mm. disappears, then the flu vaccine, people aren't going to want to take it. Uh, are they going to try to roll it into these COVID-19 boosters? Uh, that remains to be seen. But let's just uh, have a look and see what the latest ONS stats say on this. Here are the uh, weekly deaths from influenza and pneumonia. And this is very confusing, Patrick. Uh, I don't really understand this uh, because what they're saying is that uh, people have been dying from flu. Uh, we've got in the light blue color there deaths where the disease was a contributing factor uh, and in the dark blue deaths due to the disease. So um, of course they've mixed up influenza and pneumonia. I'm not really clear uh, whether they're talking about pneumonia deaths as a result of influenza or whatever, but nonetheless, let's assume that that's what they're saying. And they're saying that there have been, even in the beginning of 2021, significant deaths from influenza. Because if you look at the uh, uh, green line there, that is the five-year average. That's deaths involving influenza and pneumonia for the five-year average. And for part of the winter there this year, we were above the five-year average for influenza deaths. This is very confusing. How could this be? Let's uh, have a look and see what the message that we've been getting is. This is from Gavi. Uh, and uh, Gavi was saying uh, that influenza type A is consistently circulating globally. Well, so they're sort of implying something similar to what the ONS has been implying. But actually, if we look at the Public Health England reports on this, influenza A hasn't been around since week 52. And even then, it was in massively small numbers. Yeah. Uh, and so where are all these people that are dying from it coming from? And if we look at the uh, World Health Organization, well, there's been no influenza A or B uh, circulating, according to them, uh, since week uh, week 16, sorry, of 2020. Uh, but then, of course, when we moved to uh, uh, 2021, we started to see uh, that those figures changed slightly. But even so, it's only slightly, and there's very, very few cases. So where are these deaths coming from? It's all very confusing. Uh, so if we come back to Gavi again, uh, even though there are epidemics of different seasonal influenza strains every winter, the virus is widely perceived to be low risk by the majority of the public. Well, that is true. But of course, they're still told to get a vaccine. So but COVID's low risk to the majority of the public as well. What was the average age of a COVID death? 82. 82. So for the general public, it's also low risk. Is that safe to say? Uh, that is very safe to say. Yes. Okay. Yes. But nonetheless, there seems to be a confusing narrative building here. People are dying from influenza, but there is no influenza. Why could this be? I think there is concern, but once again, that there's not going to be any demand for flu vaccines in winter of 2021. Yeah, that big payday is not going to come. Mm -hmm. So look, the, look if, let me just throw this out before we get to our next slide. Mike. So if the testing for COVID is really garbage in terms of the data that it's producing, a lot of false positives, no active infections, not real cases, right? Right. And have they tested any of these people for influenza at the same time? Any of these COVID deaths, any of these people supposedly showing up in the hospital testing positive for COVID? Has anyone been tested for flu? Are they doing aggressive flu testing to the same degree as COVID? You know why I'm asking this question. I do know why you're asking this question. And there is no answer to that because, of course, they're not publishing that information. Or they're so not doing they're, those tests. Or, well, that's quite possible, but they're not telling us whether they're doing them or not. So we can go to the COVID-19 uh, government dashboard and we can see exactly how many tests, COVID-19 tests have been run on a week-to-week -week basis. Uh, but there is no similar dashboard for influenza. And in the weekly Public Health England COVID-19 and influenza report, they don't tell us how many how many uh, tests were actually run 
they provide that graph that I showed a couple of minutes ago, uh, which shows very, very level, very, very low levels, if not zero levels of uh, influenza identified as a result of testing, but we've no way of knowing how many tests they actually carried out. Because the obvious question is, Mike, if someone's sick with a respiratory illness, uh, they've been PCR positive tested, but could they also have influenza? And in a lot of cases, they will never know unless there was a blood work done, unless there were like proper clinical testing done. But a lot of this stuff has just been out the window, hasn't it? Yes. Because we have this testing regime that everybody swears by, but actually doesn't produce very good data at all. So where did the flu disappear? Maybe the flu is just hiding in plain sight. Uh, that's a very good point. Um, so that brings us to a tweet from Tony Heller. Tony Heller, scientist Tony Heller here. And look at this. This is what he says on Twitter. Uh, the flu killed 50 million people in 1918 to 1919. He's talking about the Spanish flu here. Uh, with an average age of death of 28 years old. By contrast, the average age of death, he's talking about the United States here, for COVID-19 is 79 years old with multiple comorbidities. So you are correct. COVID-19 does not affect the body like the flu. So which is more, Mike, which is more virulent according to this statement and according to these numbers? Is the flu more dangerous and more virulent or is COVID-19 more virulent and more dangerous to the general population? Uh, this is, the, this is a, the, the key point here uh, that if you uh, for a pandemic to be a, a genuine pandemic, uh, it really needs to be affecting all ages. Um, and uh, we need to be something, seeing something different to what normally happens every single year. Uh, and with COVID-19, we haven't seen anything different uh, to what happens every other normal year, except for the results of policy changes. Policy and, and incessant media uh, information warfare, propaganda, government propaganda, government statements, signage, billboards, uh, brochures, stickers on the ground, everywhere you're walking, everywhere you look, we're being reminded there's a pandemic. But in the reality, according to the data, Mike, that you've just shown us, that it's not affecting the general population. Yet everybody's being convinced that they're, everybody's in danger, their lives in danger mm. of COVID. COVID's like hiding around the corner. Yeah. So. Okay. So. Uh... COVID vaccine adverse effects. Well, you were talking about VAERS before. I just want to quickly point to people to this interview done by uh, the Alternate Current Radio's Boiler Room. Uh, this was done by Hesher here. We've got this posted up at 21stCenturyWire.com. This is a bit of a whistleblower segment, Mike, here. Uh, their father uh, had one of the worst strokes, according to his doctors they've ever seen, uh, pulmonary embolism. And why? Right after he had the Johnson & Johnson shot. The daughter is a registered nurse. So the brother and the daughter were interviewed here. This was recorded on the VAERS database as well. Uh, so I encourage people, it's a really powerful interview to go to 21st Century Wire and look, look at that and also share it with people. This is a real discussion uh, with real people about a really serious tragedy that happened to their family okay. involving vaccines. So I encourage people to look at it. Okay, but uh, please be kind and wear a mask. That's right. And, you know, you're not wearing the mask for yourself. Don't forget, uh, we're told that you're wearing it for others to make others feel safe. Right. And this is also why you're getting vaccinated. Right. It's not for yourself. Apparently in America, especially, they've really gone with the psychology mm. that you're doing it for others so that others feel safe. And this is the whole logic uh, supposedly behind vaccine passports here. So keep your safe distance 
and wear a mask. But this just kind of like evolved, Mike, here. And there's a possibility that according to this company in Berlin, uh, that we might actually uh, do away with the mask here for the, for the bubble uh, here. This is Plastique Fantastique uh, there in Berlin. And these are the bubbles. And you know what I'm going to say here, Mike, is that something really controversial. I absolutely support the bubbles, okay? I support for all true believers. I think you should ditch the mask, get a bubble, okay? Get them online right now in Berlin. And I, I encourage, I want to see everybody who believes in the mask to, to, to make the transition to the bubble, okay? Right. And why is that? I think this will be fantastic because it will really separate the wheat from the chaff in, in terms of society. And, you know, and, and how safe would you feel in a bubble like that, right? Oh, I think it's brilliant. Totally safe. And, and it's brilliant. It's better than the mask. I want everyone who, who believes in the mask, get a bubble. Get a bubble now. Okay. This is a great invention. I'm so, I, I'm backing this. Good. 100%. Good. You can put stickers on it as well. You can decorate it. You can even put a wig on top. I don't right. know. Have some fun with it. All right, so what's next? What's next? Well, this oh, is interesting. Yes, quarantine inspectors. Now, we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago because uh, uh, the government had uh, pushed out a contract to uh, this company, uh, Mighty, uh, Mitty, uh, to produce or to get people to check whether you're conforming to the uh, quarantines or not. Uh, compliance is critical to reduce the uh, risk of variants of concern entering yeah. the UK. Uh, uh, are the G7 leaders going to be quarantined when they arrive, uh, Patrick? Well, there's going to be more than a few variants of concern at the, uh, <laughs> yeah, the G7 meeting. Yes. Yeah. yes. So B the, Biden will be quarantined. They're, they're debating whether it's going to be safe for him to travel, obviously because of his age and he's, he's frail. Uh, is, it, is it going to be safe for him to actually go to Cornwall? Right. Okay. Uh, so those quarantining at home will be visited by staff employed by Mighty, but it's apparently not going to be just Mighty. Uh, because, uh, or MIDI, or whatever they're however it's pronounced, because uh, there seem to be other companies. This is uh, AK9 Security and FM Solutions Limited. Uh, immediate start, COVID-19 quarantine officers, Midland job at uh, uh, AK9 Security. Uh, the position is a mobile role. You have to drive your own car, but you won't be sent too far from your own home. Uh, and you need to be going around and checking uh, that people are conforming to the quarantine situation. Please Note that you will not be required to do any testing or other procedures. Duties may vary and additional tasks may be allocated to you as part of this role. It is your ch chance to get involved uh, as part of the national effort to fight this virus. Um, so this is good stuff. They've got a whole uh, number of, of uh, quarantine officer roles. And again, we see lower and lower levels of society being given the right to knock on your door and uh, uh, assess and do, do the government's work for them. This is. Uh, a bad direction uh, to be moving. Yeah, it would be good good employment opportunities for the youngsters as well. You could have the mighty Yugen uh, there suiting up to basically spy on everybody, make sure they're quarantining correctly. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities for economic opportunity there, Mike. Yes, okay. Uh, and uh, well, we've got another trial in the media. Well, this is, this is um, really about the variants, Mike, here. And uh, this is from one of our illustrious mainstream uh, newspapers just, uh, I believe, yesterday here. And so apparently they've tweaked the vaccine, uh, Moderna has. So they're doing their own studies on their own products, and they're reporting to the public that they've successfully tweaked a vaccine to deal with the South African variant, the Brazilian variant, 
and wait, wait, wait for it, the Indian variant as well. Okay. Very concerned about the Indian variant. Yes. So the, the pharmaceutical companies running their own studies with their own highly paid research hacks, making claims about the efficacy. Oh, we've tweaked the vaccine. And guess what? It doesn't need to go through any sort of Testing. regulatory because they've already been green lighted. All of the tweaks and all the variant vaccines that they want to boosters and all these sort of endless versions, these Microsoft style updates, hint, hint. Okay. Yeah. They're all okay. They're just going to be waved through the regulatory process. Nothing to worry about. And guess what? Don't you worry because the, the, the risk of, of dying of COVID is much greater than ever being injured by any of these experimental vaccines, yes. according to government officials, according to pharmaceutical companies. Yes. So what is the truth about uh, the COVID crisis in India, then, well, Patrick? Well, it, it massively overblown, Mike. Uh, a lot of this is a media creation. Just go to lockdown skeptics here. The truth about the COVID crisis in India. And we've been speaking to people in that part of the world as well. And they're absolutely blown away by how the Western media has characterized India as like this COVID genocide mm -hmm. zone. And they're even putting out fake photos of people burning bodies. Mm. Of course, there are funeral pyres in India. It's like a long thousands of years tradition in certain parts for certain religious ceremonies or, you know, poor people or down by the river and so forth. There's different traditions in India that the Western media picked up on to make these dramatic images about the COVID crisis in India and cases are surging and so forth. If you look at the, even by their own dodgy numbers, if you look at the deaths per million, Okay, one point what billion people in India? One point three billion. It's not even a blip on the radar screen. More yes. people probably getting malaria uh, than dying. No, there are of more COVID. people dying of starvation in India than are dying of COVID. That is true. So, but they're using India to drive policy in the West to say yes. you need to be worried about what's going on in India. India hit the brakes, quote, quote unquote, and now they're paying the price. That's the narrative that they're pushing through the Western media, and we're going to say. Do your own research. Uh, don't take anything you see on Bloomberg News, New York Times, BBC, any of them, CNN on face value. Do your own research. And when you do, you'll find that this story is much different than how it's being reported on. Yeah, and of course, the reason that that's important to do is because the mainstream press, increasingly funded by the respective governments of the countries that they're based in, uh, but we're not. And so we do need your help. And if you're willing to help us, please head over to UK Column org forward slash community and there are options to join us. You'd be very welcome. Uh, also share our material that you find on the various platforms while we're still on them. YouTube, of course, we're still banned from for another few days. Uh, I'm not quite sure when that gets lifted, uh, but even if it is lifted, um, <laughs> the next time we get a strike, uh, the channel gets closed. And I think that's a very likely situation in the not too distant future. We were hoping to reach 100,000 uh, subscribers on YouTube before that happened. Uh, I still think that's a worthwhile effort. We might still make it. We, we could still make it. We might still make but, it. But uh, let's uh, move on to the G7 because of course that's uh, only a few weeks away and they've already pre-meetings have begun. Uh, mm. But uh, first of all, uh, Cornwall, Patrick, uh, is where it's taking place. But is Cornwall ready from a COVID po point of view? Absolutely. We went and sent some of our crack reporters out around uh, Cornwall this weekend and we, we visited some fishing villages, Mike, uh, some remote fish villages, just to check to see if it was safe, if Coroni was literally being held at bay. And this is a boatyard that we found. And as you can see, this is a COVID secure area. These are real photographs here. 
you don't believe me, take a look at that blow up. Yeah, COVID secure area, no entry. So that type of a rope, what we learned is that's an antimicrobial rope that's used to put around those boats, Mike, so that Caroni, when he comes into the dockyard, he knows he's not going to get past right. that rope, at least if he tries to go on the rope. If he walks under on the ground, he may get in, but then it's harder for him to jump up onto the boats. Okay. So it's a lot of science involved in this, and it's way too complicated to, for me to explain. Just take our word for it. That's COVID secure. Yeah, trust so it's us. looking good for the G7 right now. It certainly is. Biden's happy when he sees the, when Biden sees reports like this, he's going to relax and think I'm safe. Basically. Yes. Okay. Well, uh, first of all, speaking of the G7, uh, let's have a listen to Grant Shapps here because, of course, uh, we are going to be opening the world as far as international travel is concerned. Uh, I do advise people to watch this clip with caution. It may make you feel ill. We all know how vital international travel is, boosting businesses, supporting economies, bringing people together. So the sooner we can safely restart international travel for all countries around the world, the better. And that's why I brought together my counterparts from the G7 countries and the European Commission today to discuss global standards for factors crucial to a safe and sustainable restart of international travel. From how best to share scientific data at a global level to what could form the universally recognised certification for vaccination. We're committed to getting international travel back up and running as soon as is safely possible. And with today's work developing global cooperation for our shared aims, we can help ensure that when travel opens again, it stays that way. So there you go, All, everything's in there. International sharing of data, uh, global certification for vaccine status, uh, all these kinds of things. Uh, he is, the G7 is uh, uh, in Cornwall in a few weeks time. They are gonna be pushing forward with this. Safely start re, uh, international travel, right? Yes. So wait, just review, what we, what'd you talk about before? Average age of a COVID death is- 82. Is 82, and what, uh, any excess mortality? Visible right not, now? Not really, no. Any no. COVID deaths in the UK? No, no. Zero? Very few. Zero this week, uh, wasn't uh, it? Well, it's certainly, it's been zero in Plymouth for a very long time now, a few, uh, several weeks, but uh, certainly uh, only a one, handful. The yes. one this week. So it's probably safe to start international travel again, right? You what do you think? Have, you would have thought so, but uh, it depends. It depends. But look, it doesn't end there because here they all are. Uh, aren't they looking wonderful uh, with their masks on? Uh, this is the G7 foreign ministers. This looks like a cult. Yes. Uh, they were, uh, well, what were they doing? They were actually brought together uh, for the first time. So this was not a virtual meeting. This is the first time in two years they've met face-to-face, -face, except they didn't meet face-to-face because -face they're wearing masks, so they can't see each other's faces. But anyway, that's okay. Uh, and uh, so they brought together foreign and development ministers from G7 countries, uh, as well as guests from the Indo-Pacific region and Africa, uh, and uh, so what were they mainly focused on? Let's just have a quick look here. Uh, first of all, they were focused on calling out the concerning Russian troop buildup on Ukraine's border. It, it's not Russia's border, is it? No, it's, no, just, it the it's just the Ukraine's border. border. Uh, they would set out a united balanced approach on China. Oh yeah, of course, it's very balanced. Uh, they're gonna defend media freedom 
uh -huh. except for Julian Assange. Uh, well, in indeed, uh, because they're going to deter the abhorrent practice of arbitrary detention, except, except for Julian Assange. Except for Julian Assange, yes. who's in Belmarsh Prison. Yes. So let's go on. Uh, a new famine prevention and human humanitarian crisis agreement, except that, of course, the, their position is that we're running the COP26 later in the year, and so Africa can't, for example, build any uh, fossil fuel-based power stations. Mm -hmm. um, so, in fact, they're not going to be able to improve their standards of living. And so famine is never going to leave Africa for as long as that's the case. Uh, so they're not really doing that. Uh, and they're going to scale up the finance needed to help countries adapt to the impacts of climate change. Because, of course, we need to make sure that African countries in particular stay in the debt, carry the debt burden that they've carried for generations now, because that's the be best way that we can keep Africa available for us to mine our cobalt and lithium and all the stuff that we need for our electric vehicles and our windmills. Sure, and our, our, our oil or whatever we can basically filter out of uh, Africa uh, on the cheap. Um, climate Impacts of climate change. Uh, what exactly are those? It's not sea level rising, right? It's not uh, droughts because that's so uh, local weather patterns, isn't it? And over agricultural uh, development and things like that. So what it, where is this man-made average global warming coming from? This has yet to be proven by the science. That, that's right. That's right. Now, of course, they said they were going to take this balanced approach to, to China uh, while they're busy building back better. Uh, but actually, they were very much focused on the idea of rules-based international order. Uh, and of course, China isn't conforming to the rules-based international order. It's doing something slightly different uh, because the rules to conform to the rules-based international order, you've got to conform to Britain and the United States, they're, they're... He who has the gold makes the rules. Right. Or he who doesn't have the gold anymore still makes the rules. Right. So, so the U.S. were saying that China is the most important agenda item for them. Uh, it has to play by the rules of the international order. Um, but uh, governments aren't being asked to choose whether to be for or against China, but rather it's a question of ensuring that China is abiding by those rules and competing fairly with us. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Yeah, and not burning coal or you know using too much uh, fossil fuels. No, indeed. So now, now of course, the uh, whole issue of Russia, as we've just mentioned, uh, and whether the border belongs to Ukraine or to Russia or to both, but uh, Russia, the Russia side of it doesn't count. Um, we've got to maintain the pressure on Russia on that. So how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to continue to build up the European Defence Union. So uh, we've talked about this many, many times over the last several years. This is the European Union's uh, diagram for what that represents. You begin with a political will to invest in a European security and progressively frame a common defense policy. And then you build the pillars. And the pillars are made up of things like bilateral defense agreements, uh, common uh, defense reviews. Uh, and also on the right-hand side there, NATO is involved in this uh, and common strategic culture and so on. But the big uh, pillar of the most important pillar is PESCO because this is sort of the implementation of Defence Union. Um, and uh, of course, some in the mainstream press, and I'm mainly talking about the Daily Express today, are suggesting that the United States under Trump was very much against uh, this European Defence Union idea. Trump had criticised it, but actually were they against it? Well, we'll see that in a second. Uh, the the uh, Express suggesting that Biden comes along in that uh, policy has been replaced. Well, here is uh, the Dutch defence minister saying, we're very pleased that tomorrow we expect a positive decision to come from three important NATO countries uh, to this EU project. This is PESCO and particularly the military mobility aspect of that. I'll explain what that is in a second. 
but uh, in fact, these three uh, important NATO countries, that's Norway, Canada, and the United States, have now agreed to join PESCO. Um, but of course, they had agreed to do that in November, uh, when at the end of Trump, uh, the Trump regime, uh, because here's Mike Pompeo, the Defense Secretary, speaking in November. He was the Defense, sorry, the Secretary of State at the time, saying the U.S. welcomes the EU's guidelines for third state participation in per permanent structured cooperation projects, uh, opening the doors to U.S. participation in EU defense initiatives, will strengthen NATO-EU cooperation as well, and very importantly, interoperability. And he said, we look forward to completing an administrative arrangement with the European Defense Agency to ensure broad U.S. Particip participation inside of PESCO. So Trump wasn't even out of office yet, but the State Department was absolutely on board with this. So that policy didn't start with Biden. It started with the State Department at the end of the Trump presidency. Uh, and uh, they were very, very keen to get involved. Now, what is this about? It's about military mobility. It's about the ability to get men, troops, materiel from the west coast of Europe right across onto the Russian border as quickly as possible to maintain the pressure on Russia. And this is something that the uh, G7 defense or the G7 foreign ministers were absolutely pushing uh, uh, over the last few days. But for the U.S., Mike, PESCO is also about the U.S. having access to supplying that market uh, for defense hardware uh, and things like that. They want to have at least a line in on what's going on commercially somehow uh, that they can sell their wares somehow in Europe uh, going forward in the future. That, that is the ultimate goal. Uh, they haven't got that far yet, but that's the direction that they're going in. It's very much about the industry as well, yes. But generally Washington, at least Trump saw NATO as, as you know, and previous presidents as well, see NATO as the US can have a hand in European affairs mm -hmm. to dictate foreign policy of European countries, um, either that or through Brussels. Now that uh, it doesn't have that with the UK through Brussels, uh, it's gonna be very important to maintain that hand through NATO and maybe to get in the back door uh, through European defense. So uh, yes. they just want to have their hand in so that they can maneuver and dictate uh, policy. Uh, they certainly do. Now let's uh, move on to censorship and uh, online harms. Uh, and this is the latest uh, news on this issue. This is Martin Lewis from Money Saving Expert. Uh, he has joined a coalition of organizations uh, urging the government to use the online safety bill to tackle scams. Now, so. You know, we talked about the online harms white paper that was published. It's going to lead to legislation, which is likely to be announced. In fact, we believe it is absolutely going to be announced in the Queen's speech, which is uh, taking place, I think, on the 11th of May. Um, and uh, the uh, online uh, safety bill is, and the online harms narrative is suggesting that the main problem is things like child abuse online, terrorism online. And now we've got this issue of uh, financial scams online. Uh, so an open letter has been written, uh, and here it is. The open letter is to Priti Patel and to Oliver Dowden. Uh, and they begin by saying, we're writing to you regarding the forthcoming online safety bill. We urge the government to expand the scope of this vital legislation to include fake and fraudulent content that leads to scams. This would better protect people against the devastating financial and emotional harm caused by these crimes. So who's involved in this? Uh, well, here we've got Age UK, we've got the Association of British Insurers, the Association of Financial Markets in Europe, we've got uh, Carnegie Trust, we've got the City of London Corporation, and we've got the City of London Police, uh, we've got uh, Innov uh, Innovate Finance, uh, the Investment Association, uh, Money and Mental Health, Money Saving Expert, of course, uh, we've got the Personal Investment 
Management and Financial Advice Association, uh, BNCE Limited, uh, the City UK, UK Finance, Victim Support and Which UK are all pushing forward with this because this is extremely vital uh, uh, legislation, Patrick. In fact, it's extremely dangerous legislation uh, because under the guise of uh, areas which already are illegal, because this is a bit like if we could think back to the Leveson inquiry when there was an attempt to regulate the press, uh, but the behavior of the, of the press that was leading to the uh, regulation was behavior which was already illegal. And this is the case here as well. Child abuse online is already illegal. Terrorism content online is already illegal. Uh, scams, that's fraud. It's already illegal. You don't need any additional legislation for this. So what's it all about? Well, it's about the likes of this. Video sharing platform regulation. Uh, that's what it, this is what it's really about. Uh, it's about the online harm of online disinformation. It's about the fact that the government is out of control with respect to the, the, to the narratives. They have no control of the narratives. They want to regain control of the narratives. And this is very much a piece of legislation which is going to have a chilling effect on free speech on the internet. And if anybody thinks that it's vital, then they need to start having a conversation with their MPs because it's their MPs that are going to be voting for or against it. Right. And so we, we talked about a number of people that are being deplatformed, censored online here. This is a really interesting story out of Russia, uh, of all places here. And uh, so the Russian government has basically, uh, in a tribunal, has found Google, YouTube, effectively, we're talking about YouTube here because they're owned uh, by Google, guilty of basically breaching contract uh, by deplatforming and yanking people's channels here. This is kind of an important precedent going on here in Russia, uh, Moscow-based Archbishop. Google does not need to understand Russians, Russia's threat, so they, they don't need to basically micromanage content within Russia's border, uh, according to this. So Google could not prove that Zargrad, this is a channel uh, th that they broke community guidelines, a Christian conservative channel here, uh, even had that been the case, Google would have had to give six months warning before breaking the contract. This is what's decided uh, in the Russian courts here. So how, how are they going to basically make this stick? Well, here's the man in question uh, here, and he's a, a type of a media uh, Svengali, uh, the owner of Zargrad, Konstantin Malofiev, and he's behind this effort basically to hold YouTube, Google uh, to account here. Uh, and so we look a little bit further here, and this was what was printed in uh, UNZ. So the, Malaviv was sanctioned by the United States. So this is the justification that uh, YouTube, Google did to pull his account, mm -hmm. his channel, basically. So as for sanctions, the tribunal ruled that U.S. and EU sanctions are part of public law of those particular countries and cannot be applied in Russia. Google has to restore their account or suffer the legal consequences here. And what are those legal consequences? Let's take a look. For the first week of non-compliance, Google would have to pay a little over $1,000, nothing to speak about there. But afterwards, the fine doubles each week. In half a year's time, Google will have to pay $70 billion. So guess what? They're going to reinstate his channel, Mike. So he's back. He'll be back online. Uh, we need to see this type of effort in other countries. So basically, they, they, they made the determination of Google, YouTube want to operate within the Russian market, which is a substantial market for their brand. They, have, they can't just go and deplatform people. 
uh, willy-nilly. So you could, you could have similar uh, legal challenges in other countries, and let's hope that we're going to see that. Yes. Uh, now, uh, of course, deplatforming from uh, the likes of YouTube and so on uh, does have a, an effect on, on reach of, of many organizations, but uh, to, to deplatform them from the payment processors, this is another step along the way. Uh, and uh, well, Rebel News has been uh, removed from PayPal, apparently. Uh, now, many people are very skeptical about Rebel News because of their closeness to Israel and, and pro-Israeli uh, narratives. But nonetheless, uh, this issue is about whether people have the right to exist as an organization and say, you know, put their positions forward. Uh, and PayPal is trying to shut them down. So uh, this, again, is another step uh, along the road of making sure that anybody who is providing any kind of counter-narrative, uh, whether you agree with it or not, really doesn't matter here. It's a question of whether people have the right to exist uh, and have the right to use the facilities that are available to every other type of business uh, on the planet. There is nothing illegal that Rebel News is doing. There's nothing illegal that the UK Column is doing. Uh, we are presenting the information as best we can, uh, and you are free to agree with us or not. You're free to provide a, a counter narrative to what we're saying or not. But uh, if, if your answer is that uh, platforms uh, or organizations such as the UK Column, for example, should not exist, uh, then in fact, you're, <laughs> you're basically making our case for us, in fact. Um, and uh, so this is an extremely dangerous uh, direction for this situation to be going in. And uh, no matter what you think about Rebel News, uh, you need to be paying attention and fighting against it, frankly. And all the other platforms that are facing the same yes. sort of attack. Yes. Now, uh, a bit of uh, lighthearted stuff now, because this is quite interesting what happened. Uh, this was uh, an organization called Outer Sight that put this on their BitChute channel, uh, this little bit of video. Uh, just have a listen to what uh, is being said here. This is Orla Guerin from the BBC uh, speaking to the Azeri president, uh, Ilham uh, Ali, uh, Aliyev, and uh, well, it's quite a, a little conversation they're having. Because there have been no restrictions, and the number of uh, internet users in Azerbaijan is uh, more than 80%. Can you imagine the restriction of media in a country where internet is free, there is no censorship, and there are 80% of internet users? We have millions of people on Facebook. How can you say that we don't have free media? This is, uh, again, a biased approach. This is an attempt to create a perception in Western audience about Azerbaijan. We have opposition, we have NGOs, we have uh, free political activity, we have free media, we have uh, freedom of speech. But if you raise this question, can I ask you also one? How do you uh, assess what happened to Mr. Assange? Is it a reflection of free media in your country? We're not here to discuss no, my let's country. Discuss, no, let's discuss. No, President In order Ali to accuse me, saying that Armenians will not have free uh, media here, let's talk about Assange. How many years, sorry, how many years he spent in Ecuadorian embassy? And for what? And where is he now? For journalistic activity. You kept that person hostage, actually killing him morally and physically. You did it, not us, and now he's in prison. So you have no moral right to talk about free media when you do these things. Returning to the... So uh, that went on a little bit longer, but, uh, and I think the interview itself was done uh, at the end of last year, but nonetheless, that's the first time I've seen it. I thought 
that was a very uh, considered response from him. And uh, clearly some of these uh, uh, political leaders around the world uh, wise to what particularly the BBC are doing, but many other mainstream media channels as well, and seem to be uh, prepared to actually push back against it now. Great to see. Yes. Really great to see. So, um, so where does that take us? Well, this is a nice little uh, warm and t uh, fuzzy eugenics story here uh, in Vogue. Let's take a look at this. Uh, so they're asking Vogue here, uh, is having a baby in 2021 pure environmental vandalism here? Are you really going against Greta's grain on this? Let's look at what they say. Is having a child an act of environmental vandalism or an investment in the future, asked Vogue? Is it possible to live in an ecologically responsible life while adding yet another person to our overstretched planet, asks Vogue here. And then the final knock, uh, can I get away with it if I just never learn to drive and never get a dog and keep wearing the same three pairs of jeans for the rest of my life? I mean, these are the deep questions that the eugenicists in mainstream media are asking now. They're really asking people to reflect on you know, whether procreation is, will make you a climate criminal, yes. basically. So you can see how eugenics and the, the, envir the climate change movement, very much like a Venn diagram. Yes. Overlapping. Yes. Speaking of eugenics here, this is a story, Mike, that really rocked the eugenics community this past week here. Look at this. Bill and Melinda Gates are divorcing after 27 years of marriage. Can you believe it? That's a great picture. That is a great picture. Who wears the trousers in that house, Patrick? Well, looking at that picture, Mike, it's pretty clear that uh, Melinda has the upper hand and... Uh, those are quite a pair of hands that she does have there. But look at this. After 27 years, they no longer believe that they can grow together and are divorcing. It's very sad, Mike. So we just thought we'd take a walk down memory lane. This really was a romance that uh, for the ages, really. And uh, there they are with their one, some kind of Masonic medal or something there. What are we talking about here? Well, $130 billion net worth. That's got to be split up, Mike. I'm sure you have something to add to that in a minute. But so, you know, really the, the Gateses are going to be transitioning, Mike. Uh, what are they going to be transitioning to? We're not sure. But this does remind us of another high-profile uh, divorce. Well, before we get yeah. to that one, we'll, we'll just talk about the, the details because uh, the Express has, has decided to tell us that, uh, trans, that Bill Gates has transferred. What did you say the overall worth, worth was? 140 billion? Yeah, it's 130. 130 billion, yeah. yeah. So 1.4 billion in shares has gone to Melinda now. Uh, so that's made up of 359 million pounds worth of Coca Cola, FEMSA, and Grupo Televisa uh, shares, plus another uh, 1.07 billion pounds worth of uh, uh, Canadian National Railway Company shares, another 2.9 million shares of American automotive retailer AutoNation. So they apparently didn't have a prenuptial agreement, Patrick, but they have come up with a divorce contract uh, so that we're not going to see any massive scandal in the press uh, over the, uh, the court case because there isn't going to be one. The deal's already been done. They're, fighting, they're also going to be fighting over custody of, uh, of the vaccines, apparently. But yes. Rumor has it that uh, Bill will be allowed to visit his From stockpiles on the weekends. Yeah. Yes. So what do you think is going to happen now that they are going their separate ways? Are they well, going to transition? I don't know. Well, this was a high-profile marriage here, Mike, and uh, this is uh, Bruce Jenner and Chris Jenner here. 
Um, and that's the pre, there on the right hand side, that's the pre transition right. photo here. But then after the divorce, it became Caitlyn Jenner and Kris Jenner. So that's a kind of a novel transition there. Right. Weird things are happening in high places with some of these celebrity marriages, so you never know. We're not saying that that's going to happen with the Gateses, of course. So that's just outrageous. Some people say it already has, but anyway, that's another story. That's another area of inquiry, isn't it? But look at this here. Uh, some good news. This is the post-millennial puberty blockers banned uh, in treating uh, gender dysphoria youth in Sweden. So Sweden's uh -huh. basically put their foot down on this whole use of all of these puberty blockers and excessive hormone treatments for children uh, that are supposedly having a gender identity issues here. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a, according to some people, a positive development, obviously because they're so young, the side effects are so great, long-term physical damage potentially mm -hmm. that it can't be reversed. So um, and you're, we're starting to see a number of other countries pushing, pushing on, on this issue. So it's very interesting what's going on. But speaking of um, gender, Mike, uh, look at this. This is a biological male weightlifter who identifies as a female will be competing against women, poised to become the first transgender Olympian powerlifting here. This is Laurel Hubbard from New Zealand, and that is no lightweight that uh, Laurel is lifting right there, Mike. And uh, so this is from the Blaze. So this is in New Zealand, so basically competing against women in powerlifting in the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. And as it stands right now, will be basically potentially on the podium uh, here. Look at this, Hubbard's best qualifying total, 285 kilos, which uh, is about 628 pounds, and puts them very much in the reckoning for a place on the podium for women's super weightlifting in Tokyo. How about that? And uh, let's take a look at uh, Miss, well, Ms. Uh, Laurel Hubbard. Uh, we'll have a look at that now, actually. Oh. Look, I think every athlete has to develop a certain amount of toughness because when you're competing at this level, you just can't let the distractions distract you. And so I don't think I'm any different from anyone else. I don't think I'm any tougher. Um, I just do what I have to do. Uh, no different from anyone else except that uh, you're attempting to take part in women's sport when you're not a woman. In, in weightlifting. In weightlifting. Which yeah. arguably is the most masculine of all competitions at the Olympics. Um, so, I mean, this makes the East German women's swimming team uh, from the 1980s look like a bunch of uh, effeminate ballet dancers mm. uh, in comparison. I mean, I should be allowed to compete with the men. That might be fair, a lot of people think, but not with the women, uh, because obviously an unfair biological advantage. Yes. 43 years old, has been identifying as a woman for the last seven years, since age of 35. So what will be the oldest person competing uh, in the Olympics, I believe. So again, how would Laurel fare in the men's category? Would, would, you know, would Laurel qualify? I suspect not. I suspect not. Probably not. So yep. again, the debate is raging. This is just going to be so controversial if this yep. goes ahead. Yes. Okay. Well, look, we're right out of time, Patrick. But uh, well, this is a little bit of, well, what is going on here? A little fun story, isn't it here? Again, the post-millennial South Carolina House approves death by firing squad 
as an option for execution. So what they're doing here, they're giving the elective choice to prisoners either to have be electrocuted, lethal injection, and now they've added this, a firing squad here. Excellent. Price, and man. so a lot of people <laughs> just think, this is wild, who saw this coming, right? Right. But what, is it, what does it mean? I mean... Are we going to see the return of the guillotine in other states? What, what, uh, where, where is this going? What about the return of the pistol duel? If you, you know, slag somebody off on Twitter, you could challenge them to for a duel, a pistol duel to defend their honor. I mean, where, where are we heading here? We certainly seem to be heading backwards in certain in certain areas, don't we? Yeah. So, and again, the, the interesting thing I'll, I'll say about the firing squad option is then they'll also be obligated to offer a range of cigarettes as well All right. along with that when you wouldn't get that option with electrocution or lethal injection. So there's something about firing squads and having that cigarette that's, uh, okay. that goes together. So it's, it's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of a human story there. To end off with, so thank you very much, Patrick, and welcome back. And uh, we will be back at the same time on Monday as usual. So we hope you have a great weekend uh, and uh, see you at 1 p.m. Monday. Bye-bye.